out of the gates and ready to go. Hot Mike is back. Tuesday edition is here. Sixth and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine, Hutton and Withrow, and a cast, including Michael McHenry. He will join us in 20 minutes, former Major League Baseball catcher. Time to talk opening day, which is on Thursday. Plus, uh, plenty to discuss from the World Baseball Classic and endorsement money that we'll get to momentarily. A.J. Perez from Front Office Sports joins us in hour number two. He will be live in Phoenix from the NFL owners meetings. Armando Salguero has got it covered as well at OutKick. AJ will dive into the money and big money being reported today for the Washington Commanders. Colby Covington, UFC championship fight is on deck for him against Leon Edwards. At least that's what Dana White says. Leon Edwards doesn't want it. He wants someone else. Colby Covington joins us in Hour 3. Chad, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hudden. Day 2 of the new uh, show rebranding. We made it to Day 2. Small victories. We take any victory right. we can get. Small victories. We're here for Day 2. Matt said we wouldn't make it, but here we are. So excited for a big day. Softball game tonight that I'll oh. be coaching. The return to the softball diamond, or the softball pitch, as I like to call it, to be more international. So Red excited Sox, to get back out Red there. Red Sox are playing? Yankees. Wow. Red Sox-Yankees Big tonight. rivalry. Opening day on Thursday, but Red Sox-Yankees tonight in seven- and eight-year-old softball. Chad, I mentioned uh, A.J. Perez will join us in an hour or two, and I'm, I want to start there with the big money uh, for both Lamar Jackson and Daniel Snyder. And we'll start with Jackson where, you know, initially whenever the, the non-exclusive franchise tag was slapped on Lamar, the Ravens allowed their former MVP to go to the bidding war of free agency if teams wanted to. And then it didn't happen. But it's starting to pick up because Lamar Jackson says he asked for a trade on March 5th. The tag was applied on March 7th. And in essence, that's exactly what Baltimore was doing. Sign someone to a contract. Sign Lamar to a contract on that tag. You'll get two first-round picks in return if you're Baltimore. However, if you're another team... Lamar Jackson's probably not going to sign that exclusive tag. And knowing what we know about what's being reported for Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, where it's not a first-round pick, but a second-round pick this year, and then a second-round pick next year that could be a first-round pick for Green Bay if Aaron Rodgers reaches certain plain numbers, certain performance bonuses that would up that to a first-round pick. The holdup is... a a Jets selection if Rodgers decides to retire after 2023. That being said, if you're another team, why give up two first-rounders if you know that the former two-time MVP in the last three years, Aaron Rodgers, is going to get less than that? Point being, this is going to have a ripple effect across the NFL because teams that reportedly were out don't seem so out of the bidding war not so fast. Let's start with the Indianapolis Colts. They're the only team so far that has publicly said, yeah, we're interested. Chris Ballard, their general manager, said as much at NFL owners' meetings. They're going to go down that path. That's number one. Number two, the Tennessee Titans. Mike Vrabel was not adamant that Ryan Tannehill is their starter in 2023. The answer was very coy. He played it well, and he left options open saying, hey, this Burmy last time I said that we weren't going to have... Uh, A.J. Brown wasn't going anywhere. We weren't going to trade him. We know what happened there. They didn't say that about Tannehill this week. And then there's the Atlanta Falcons, where Arthur Smith said, of course, we're always looking to upgrade the roster. 
And this goes for any position, including long snapper or backup guard. We know what he's saying there. He also said Desmond Ritter is their starter. Yeah, he's their starter right now. But Atlanta would be perfect for, for Lamar Jackson. And, and then there's the Commanders and the Patriots, who remain in Vegas among those teams at the top of the list as bidding favorites that could land Lamar Jackson this offseason. This is far from over now that Jackson has said he wants out, and he said so two days prior to the non-exclusive tag being uh, put on him by Baltimore. Now, the other big money. Daniel Snyder's going to win and win big, and so are the owners here. Because Michael Harris, the owner of the New Jersey Devils and the Philadelphia 76ers, has upped his bid to the asking price of $6 billion for the Washington Commanders. Now, when we went into the week, it was out there that it was not on the docket, it was not on the agenda that the owners were going to discuss the Commanders and Daniel Snyder. You better believe they're discussing Daniel Snyder because the next time they get together, they're going to be voting on whether or not to approve Michael Harris with other investors. It includes Magic Johnson. $6 billion. Coincidence that it happens this week? No, because he's upped it to reach that threshold that Snyder wants, and he's done it in a week where all the owners are together knowing that the next time they'll be voting on the new owner of the Commanders. At least that's what I see here because if you want to be on the agenda for that, put your name out out in front now and put the money up that, that Daniel Snyder wants. And the owners win as well because they get Snyder out of the league and they also go from $4.6 billion for the Denver Broncos last year to now Washington being the most sought-after franchise for $6 billion and Seattle is on deck in the next year or so. They'll go way above that asking price as well. It's big money. They get the, the douche of an owner out of the league with this, and they end up on top. So does Daniel Snyder, and so does Michael Harris and his ownership group because keep in mind Lamar Jackson is still among the favorites for Washington. Chad, the fully financed offer of $6 billion, would you turn it down? No, absolutely not. I love what... Um, First off, Michael Harris from Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah, he's from the D.C. Initially, yeah. so yeah. there's another Washington, D.C. billionaire involved. I, I like the, this sounds, you know, a little cute for buying a multi-billion dollar NFL team, but I do like the idea of local ownership in some way. So having one of, and I know there's multiple people in this group, but having a Washington, D.C. billionaire coupled with a billionaire originally from the state of Maryland to me, makes a lot of sense for the sell of that team. Um, yeah, absolutely. I love it. And the Lamar Jackson part of this, and I went through and I listed the teams you mentioned, mm -hmm. the most likely candidates. Titans, Colts, Commanders, Patriots, Falcons. And I'm trying to mentally now decipher what rosters make the most sense for Lamar Jackson, style-wise also, to go and win and win big now. I think the Titans are close to the top of that list. I would put the Patriots... On that list also, where yep. do the commanders rank? Because I do think the commanders I mean, on this list with the Falcons and the Colts have the biggest need at quarterback right now. The commanders are right in the thick of the playoffs last year in the toughest division in football. With no quarterback. Right. Really. Yeah, and everything else going on so around the So would you put them at the top of the list? I think it makes a great fit for them. Now, you know, they, they could... The benefit, I think, with the Titans or Colts would be division. Well, and the Titans O-line. The Commanders yeah. aren't bad there, and they have a very good defense, right? They're one of the top in the league. Patriots, I like that. Falcons, to me, the offense is just perfect for them. 
And they've added, you know, pieces at wide receiver. Uh, Kyle Pitts is a wide receiver slash tight end. Investing in the run game. Signing a ton of offensive linemen. Well, I say it because there's not, when I start to go through this list, there's not one that jumps out to me and I say, well, that just makes no sense. Well, what do you do if you're Baltimore? I would probably put the Colts last on the list if I had to guess, but I mean, I could see that working also. The Colts have spent $148 million since 2018 in Andrew Luck's retirement on quarterbacks. Number one on the list is Baltimore. I just excluded them because he wants to move on. But the best place for Lamar Jackson with what they've built around yeah, him to have yeah. an offense that accentuates his, his skill set, Baltimore's the best spot to be to go win right now. But of these teams that are left, I think it's fun to play the game of, now let's slot it, not just money. I'm not talking about cap room or what teams could offer with trade and what they could offer monetarily. Let's just look at the football side of it. What's best for Lamar Jackson to go in and play well and win with the rosters around him. Titans, Colts, Commanders, Patriots, Falcons. Mentally try to rank those one through five. And it's an interesting exercise. With what you're saying, Hutton, you're selling me more on the Commanders, maybe being at the top of that list, but I still put Titans high on the list. Patriots would be up there. Falcons are getting closer, but I still would put them closer to the bottom of the list with the Colts with rosters right now to win. I'm with you. But it's fun. It's fun and to look at the possibilities. there will always be a mystery team. Miami would be on this list, but they don't have the picks in order to do it because they tampered with Tom Brady on that yacht. Uh, so there's only actually 31 first-round picks this year. Who hasn't tampered with Tom Brady on a yacht, though? Sure. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's Everyone Tom Brady. would love to. Yeah. Every owner. Um, Every, everyone tampers with Tom on a that's yacht. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just what you do. And you get Brady on your yacht, you're tampering with him. That's what you do. And if he doesn't select you, you get Element or Gronk. That's the yeah. other thing. They'll also show up on your yacht. Both Chad, those guys. The least valuable, least valuable Major League Baseball team, the Miami Marlins, at just a little over a billion right now. Now, again, it's a billion. But that tells you where Major League Baseball is compared to the least valuable NFL franchise because the next NFL franchise would be the next highest acquired franchise based on the billions. And a lot of it has to do with the popularity of the sport, but also the knowledge of the common fan knowing the players on the rosters. And a lot of this has to do with marketing dollars. You dove into the numbers through front office sports. So the, the Forbes has the you know, top 10 highest paid Major League Baseball players. Okay. And this list combines both salary and endorsement. And something really jumped out to me. We talked last week, I did about... Shohei Otani and how I'm perplexed that this guy is not a bigger American celebrity. Global icon and also American celebrity with what he's doing baseball-wise. Shohei Otani's top of the list, $65 million he's going to make this year. Guaranteed $30 million one-year contract with the Angels, plus $35 million in endorsements. That's really good. Now, 30 of that $35 million, or 30-plus of that, is all in Japan. Japanese pharmaceuticals company. Japanese hygiene company. I'm looking up Japanese electronics company. So he's making a bulk of his endorsement money over in Japan. Now here's where it gets tricky for Major League Baseball after that. Max Scherzer, who's making $58 million with the Mets, is making $1 million only in endorsements. Aaron Judge is second in baseball. 
the drop off is from 35 million for Otani to four and a half million dollars down to Aaron Judge. Then you've got Mike Trout at four million dollars. This is an endorsement, and Justin Verlander at one million dollars. Now I compared this to NBA and NFL players and looked at the top five highest paid guys endorsement wise in each league. NBA, LeBron James, $64 million in endorsements. Steph Curry, $40 million in endorsements. Kevin Durant is basically dead even with Shohei Otani at $34 million. All of this coming from America, by the way, with Kevin Durant and not Japan. That's the third highest endorsement. But think about the drop-off from Otani to, to Aaron Judge. Giannis, $27 million. Russell Westbrook, $25 million. NFL, Tom Brady recently retired, I know, 45 million. Patrick Mahomes, 22 million. Dak Prescott, 13 million. Russell Wilson, 12 million. Aaron Rodgers, 11 million. I highlight these numbers and how out of whack they are. Not to show that Major League Baseball is in any financial trouble. They just raked in billions last year. Right. Biggest gross, biggest revenue ever in the history of the game. They are spending at record rates. Steve Cohen has paid the GDP of about 15 different countries combined for his payroll for the Mets this year. Money's fine with Major League Baseball, but it's the endorsement money and the lack thereof that jumps out to me because that shows a clear lack of star power, and that does catch up to you. And with these regional television networks folding and filing for bankruptcy and teams now left to try to find a home for their games, that will also catch up with Major League Baseball. So keep that in mind. Major League Baseball versus the NBA versus the NFL and the discrepancies in what players are making in individual endorsements, that's going to be a big problem for baseball if that does not improve. Salaries are great, but you got to make money in endorsements as well because the lack of money being spent with these athletes and endorsements shows me they're not overly marketable right now, and they need to be more of that. We need baseball players to be household names again. And they're not, and, and outside of two or three people. And that's the, the, what do you care about? What don't you care about? In Major League Baseball, you care about your team. And so the dollars are, in large part, regional or local, very specific to that area. And we mentioned Otani. I'm still stunned that Aaron Judge hasn't popped up that list after last year. With all the marketing that was going on behind the league and with ESPN about the American League home run record, the, the American League king, you know, all rise for Aaron Judge. No mention of the home run champions of years past, right? Yeah, and it's... It's it, all about the American League, and, and still, he sits where? So he's at $4.5 million, yeah. just to compare that. Fifth on the list in the NBA going into this season was Russell Westbrook. He makes $25 million. That's more than five times the amount of endorsement money for fifth place on this list compared to second in Major League Baseball. And it's Russell Westbrook. I mean, we make fun of the NBA for a lot of reasonable reasons when they screw things up and how the league has gone down. They know how to market. Their stars are stars. Their top players are celebrities. They are individuals. And they get endorsement money that you're not seeing in Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball, you're right, not as much of an individual sport. And that, those, but they need individuals deals. to rise. A lot of that is shoes. Yeah, they need individuals the, in, to rise. Too. Oh, the biggest American deal that Otani has is New Balance. He's got a huge deal with New Balance cleats. And they're, they're making apparently an entire lifestyle brand around Shohei Otani, which is good for him. Michael McHenry played in Major League Baseball. 
He was a catcher for years, and now he's a Major League Baseball analyst. He'll join us coming up. We'll dive into the endorsements. Major League Baseball, from the league standpoint, their support in actually promoting the individual instead of the league as a whole. And wait until you hear the story uh, about the city that's trying to tell Major League Baseball they want their name back as far as trademarks are concerned. That's next on Hot Mike with Hutton Withrow. And we're back with Michael McHenry, MLB analyst, Pirates broadcast analyst. And he's with us on Tuesdays, as well as Kurt Schilling's. We talk Major League Baseball, which is just around the corner this Thursday, opening day. Mike, hope you're doing well. You guys as well. I heard we got a new name. I'm pretty excited. The Hot Mike. Yeah. Fits you guys perfectly. How, how would that go over in a clubhouse? The hot mic? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it go over well. I think guys get scared of the microphone sometimes. Fair. Here's the real question for you, Michael. Is that plant behind you real or fake? What do you guys think? I think that, it's real. I feel like you're a guy who waters your plants daily. Is it a real plant? No, it's not. No, okay. it's an olive well. tree. It's not real. I wish it was. What was opening day like for you? It was special. The very first time I made the, the team... I got to have three opening days, which I thought was really, really special. I get to go to San Fran, LA, and then go back into Pittsburgh. And I got a flyover on each. I think if you don't have a flyover, you're doing something wrong during opening day. Every owner should really take some time and um, kind of celebrate it in that way. I think it's very, very special. But you know, doing it in California and in LA and in San Fran, it was really special. It was right after San Fran won the World Series. So it made it even more special. And man, I, I can't explain to you the special moment it is to be one called and ran out to the line. And then two, just being able to sit there and have all your little boy dreams come true. Yeah, it's got to be awesome, man. And the, uh, the different versions of opening day based on the team, you know, that's the other thing too, and how they treat it. And if you're at home or on the road, right? Because that also plays a huge factor in the overall energy for it. You're exactly right. I mean, the best opening days for me were on the road, honestly. Like, it, being at PNC was outstanding, but being in San Fran, I just don't think I can explain to you the energy you felt. And then going to L.A. right after that and feeling the energy there. I mean, they weren't the L.A. Dodgers of now. They were the L.A. Dodgers of old. Yeah. They weren't quite as good. They were starting to figure it out, but there's 60,000 people there. There's a huge difference of that feel, and it's all blue, right? And then you go into San Fran, you're right next to the bay, and it feels like the bay is about to come on top of you, how loud the stadium gets. Just a different feel. So ratings were up for the World Baseball Classic, and you had that big moment with Otani versus Trout to end the entire tournament. Michael, how much do you think that tournament helped the sport overall? And I'm not talking globally per se, but in the United States, do you think that it was a big benefit to the sport? I'll use Newt Bar, the guy that was on Japan's team and seemed to be Otani's best friend during the tournament. He went from having about 25,000, 30,000 followers on Instagram to almost a million. That kind of shows the impact it had and what they were able to do with promoting these players, which I think is one of the biggest problems we've had in Major League Baseball over the last decade is being able to promote these players, the MLB, MLBPA, these brother and sister, stepbrother syndrome they have, not getting together and saying, we need to really get these players out in front, put them right in front of the fans, let them get to know them 
especially the human side of it, because the biggest thing for me watching this tournament, you could see the human being just out in front. Otani's just this giant, jolly little kid that happens to have super freak talent, and he's on display, and that's what you want. And guys, I don't know about you, but I wish they would do this every two years. I don't want to wait till 2026. I want to see it every two years. Yeah. I think it's out in the open, and the best talent should be on the field consistently because we're seeing that talent come to come together. I mean, it, it, it's something that's so special that we don't really understand it, I don't think yet, that the fact that Dominican Republic didn't make it to the finals, and you had Puerto Rico, you had Venezuela just fighting, clawing, then you have Mexico. You have a world stage, and the baseball is getting better in every single country. we got to put that on display more often. Yeah, two L.A. Angels at the center of this with Otani oh. and Mike Trout. Anthony Rendon is back and healthy for the Angels this year also. Is this the year we're going to see this team be a playoff team, Michael? I want to say yes, and their owner is probably out after this year, so they're going all in. And if they want any any chance to keep Otani in that uniform, they're going to have to go all in throughout the year. They can't wait around. They're going to have to make moves maybe in May, maybe in June. But I'll tell you right now, guys, it's always the pitching. That's the problem with them. It's never that they don't have good hitting. Obviously, Pools was maybe a lug for a little while in that lineup. He didn't perform the way that they wanted him to over a decade. But now he's gone. You have Rendon healthy. You're right. They have the pieces in place in their lineup but can they pitch enough? And it, it's a lot to put on a guy like Tyler Anderson and say, hey, go out there and we, we want you to be our ace. He's more of a guy that's more in the middle of a rotation, maybe not put that much pressure on him, but we'll see. I hope it's that time that they kind of push forward and there is a Tennessee guy that you know is right in the middle of that mix that could make that team and make that team a lot better. There's 105. What's the fastest pitcher you faced? Uh, probably Chapman. He he had 105 in Cincinnati, but I think they had the gun rigged. I mean, they always okay. seem to have it turned. There. So, do you think this one is rigged, or do you think this is legit? No, I think guys are really throwing 105 now. I, I think the ability to understand the human being and the human body is phenomenal now. Guys can really tap into potential they never could tap into with human performance, and these guys are really doing a great job figuring out how to maximize their ability whether it's throwing hard or learning how to pitch. I think a lot of times guys learn how to throw hard first, and then they come back, rewind, and learn how to pitch after that fact. Is there a mile per hour where it all looks the same once you get above it? For example, if you throw 99 and then you throw 102, is there a big discernible difference as a batter, or does it all look the same at some point? You know, honestly, 95 and above starts to look all the same. And, and there's, there's occasional guys... And I'll be honest, you'll see a guy throw 92 and it looks like 97. And I'll explain that a little bit deeper. If you go to Strider, you know, we have a lot of Atlanta fans listening. He has an incredible extension, right? He's barely six foot. I'd, I'd venture to say since I've, I caught him when he was a little dude, he's probably 5'11", but his extension's in the 90 to 95 percentile. So he releases the ball closer than most guys on the planet. And because of that, it has a different type of velocity because the extension is closer. And then he has this spin that puts him on a different level. So he has a high spin rate, which makes the ball defy gravity. It doesn't come down as fast. And then he has this extension that also makes that perceived velocity a lot faster. So his 95 looks like 102 where other guys are 95 may look like 92. That's why all this technology, all these matrix are so important. It's not changing the game any more than, Hey, what is it quantifying and how fast can I figure it out? That's the benefit of having these numbers and guys that can really tap into it, like a strider, can almost make his fastball unhittable.
He's the fort. Michael McHenry with us on Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow. So A-Rod is a part of the Fox broadcast. Derek Jeter is as well now, based on A-Rod's blessing. Um, this is interesting because there's, there's a history here. When, when Rodriguez was a Mariner, he made the comment to, I believe, Esquire, who said, hey, uh, Derek Jeter's never had the lead. He's always had talent around him. When you go into New York, the scouting report doesn't say, hey, we, we got to stop Jeter first because of the hitters around him hitting first or hitting third and fourth. And that soured things with Jeter. And then I, right after that, or a couple of seasons after that, the Yankees traded for him. And we know the history with Rodriguez in New York as well, uh, compared to Jeter, the captain. What do you make of the dynamic and the fact that you know, Fox had the professional courtesy to reach out and ask him about it before they made a move. Well, my whole thing is who played third base? I forgot. Was that A-Rod? Did he move positions? He did. And I think that speaks volumes to who the leader was. Usually the leader is the guy that's the, the quietest guy in the clubhouse. It leads by example. And I think Jared Jeter did that in his entire career. He's gotten some flack over the last couple of years about all the analytical numbers that are coming out showing that he's not quite as good as he was this guy was special. When you can put a winning cap on somebody and say, this guy is deemed a winner, he's special, right? That's when I lose argument between Michael Jordan and LeBron. The guy, when you look at Michael Jordan, he went out there every single night. It didn't matter if he had the flu, if he had a broken leg, broken toe, he was playing. It's a different breed. It's a different animal. That's what Jeter is. And the fact that they had to ask A-Rod, that's an absolute joke. If you can get Jeter to come talk baseball, you shut your mouth, you sit down, and you ask as many questions as you can, and you listen. Because that man has got a special head on his shoulders. He maximized his ability. He didn't have to use any enhancements or anything else that I know of. He went out, did his job every single day, and everybody I've ever met that knew the man loved him. So in college basketball, we've got sort of a Cinderella Final Four of Florida Atlantic and San Diego State and Miami, not known for basketball, being there. And it got me thinking about baseball and if there was an equivalent to that and if, if it's even possible the way the sport is broken down right now with teams that have no payroll at all. Then I started thinking about Hutton's Baltimore Orioles. And I see that they have two of the top candidates to be AL MVP. Two of the top three in terms of betting right now are both Orioles. For I'm now. not saying necessarily them. The trade deadline will happen. Yeah, and it's not necessarily them, Michael, but is there a team or is it even possible for an Orioles-Reds-level payroll to go on some miraculous Major League Cleveland Indian-style run to a pennant in today's game, especially with someone like Steve Cohen spending what he's spending with the Mets right now? Absolutely, because it's still a team sport. If you can get a group of guys to wrap their arms around each other and become a brotherhood, you can do anything. And I, I think a perfect example is when the exhibition game between the USA and San Francisco Giants, who won? Giants won five to one. And yeah, you could say, oh, these guys haven't played together, blah, blah, blah. It's the best players on the planet against a B team in spring training. So the reality of it is, yes, in baseball, I think that separator is so different when it comes to the, the money, but when you look at the ability, it, it really is that different because nobody's going to take over a game outside of maybe Otani because he can do it on both sides of the ball. But if you're paying a guy $330 million to pitch once every five days. He can't affect an entire series. And most of these guys won't do what they did in the old school where 
I'll use Kurt Schilling since he's he's a guy that works with us consistently. He would have got he would have grabbed the ball, walked out there on day one, day three, day five, and day seven. You're never going to see that again. These guys will will protect themselves. They'll not get out there, and and I can't knock them for it. I wish they would, but that's not the game that we're watching nowadays. It's it's protect the player. Don't throw too much. There's a lot more injuries than there ever have been in almost any other time in baseball history. They got to figure that out and they got to get the best players out there consistently. Or the reality of it is the team that really collectively comes together. We watched it with the Atlanta Braves when they won the world series, maybe not the best team or the most talented. They didn't even have their best player. They went out there and won the world series because they came together. Boston is coming together to get their name back from major league baseball. Oh. Uh, so the story goes, so David Ortiz once said, this is our effing city, right? Um, so it looked as though the Red Sox applied for a trademark of the word Boston that would apply for all merchandise, anything they want to slap the word Boston on. They've also done that, I believe for the Mariners and the, and the Astros as well. But the Red Sox didn't actually apply for that. It was major league baseball that did it using the Red Sox as the reason why. So they can profit as a league. What do you make of this and the fact that Boston is saying, hey, we want you to rescind this, uh, not because we want to use it, but because you shouldn't own the name Boston. They're bullies. The best way to put it, Major League Baseball is a giant bully. I mean, they're in the regional networks. They they grabbed a hold of the balls, the rules. If you look at how that entire vote comes about, there's 12 votes, four votes to players. The rest go to pretty much owners. So it's becoming a monopoly and they're allowed to do it. Go look at the Congress, right? They are allowed to do whatever they want. They can create a monopoly in every single way and they're going to overstep until they get pushed back. And I'm so happy Boston pushed back. I'm kind of interested to see what Seattle does and Houston does. They're literally trying to take a city's name and trademark it. There's so much rich history in Boston. They're trying to say Boston Red Sox. That's all that matters there. Like the Boston Celtics don't exist. Like there's not some incredible schools there in rich history really in our foundational history of the United States, the fact that they feel like they can overstep like that's absolutely remarkable. They need to kind of have a woe factor right here and someone needs to push back. And this story should be everywhere, but it's not. It's something that kind of came across my phone. Somebody texted me, can you believe this? I said, absolutely. They're, they're just getting started. And this is through the Boston Herald that says that they've done this recently, but they've done it for Houston and Seattle. And this would apply, Chad, for merchandise, entertainment, anything they want to slap that logo on or that word on, they would get a cut of the profits uh, based on whatever it would be. How for is any the entity. name of a city not just public domain? Well, that right? it is an aggressive trademark application. I mean, that seems like it would be impossible, that that would just fall under public domain and you could not have a trademark application for the name of a city. Isn't it? it uh, it's interesting, though, they, they've chosen these three initially mm. and not any of the others. They well, maybe want, the other ones are already, Tampa. Maybe the other ones are already trademarked, and we just don't know it. <laughs> they didn't want Tampa yet. They yeah. didn't want uh, Arizona. No, that's more St. Petersburg. You know, yeah, they were yeah, searching for there. That's where they play, St. <laughs> Pete. So they wanted that. Uh, Mike, so coming into the season, I think we kind of know where the World Series is going to end up based on payroll. Right now, who do you have as the World Series champion? As we are on uh, right around the corner from opening day. I, I, I feel like a broken record, but I, I'm going to have to go with the Atlanta Braves right now. I'm going to have to. And, and the reason is, is because the young talent that's right there, 
the way that they've structured their team and really bought in with guys and they've extended the, I guess the core, you would say, we just haven't seen that in years past. And I feel like going back to that conversation, we're just having about having that team aspect. They've got it. They've got it. I mean, I would have said the Mets, they lost their closer. It's going to be really hard to kind of buy that in. The Phillies had a really good shot. There's not an AL team that really jumps out. I do like what New York just did by letting that shortstop, the 20 year old, you know, make the team. I think that's going to be a mm. big push for them because it kind of shows what they're trying to do and they believe in their young talent. And he also brings that as aspect of that homegrown and the Yankees seem to love that. You look at judge, some of the other guys, they really backed that up. So I do think that helped the Yankees. And I think we're going to see a Yankees Braves world series. It doesn't have to be the case, Michael, but when I look at the top of the NL East with Phillies, Mets, what they're spending, and then with the Braves, and I think, now all three of those teams could theoretically make the playoffs, but it feels like two of the three will get in and one won't. And thinking about how brutal that round robin of all of those games, those three teams will play against each other from April until October and who's going to be left standing at the end of it, that's going to be whoever gets the playoffs will have been battle-tested coming out of the NL East, just at the top three of that division. What, what do you think about the matchups between those three teams? And I know you got the Braves in the World Series, but who would be the other team left standing in that group? I'll, I'll never bet against Verlander or Scherzer. I mean, those two guys, they're battle-tested. They're guys that... They fight and claw, but they are 38, 39, into their 40s. That's not precedence, not easy to do. So I'm not going to say, hey, these guys are going to stay healthy because they haven't stayed healthy throughout their career. Scherzer wasn't healthy last year. Obviously, if he's in a lineup, he's pitching, he's one of the best on the planet. Same thing when you look at Verlander, but they have to be in there. And the fact that they're that age, getting paid that type of money, you can't throw all your chips into that. And one thing that you also have to look at, guys, is the fact that these guys are going to be playing every single team. So the NL East isn't going to just absolutely beat the crap out of each other all year long like they have the last couple of years. They get to actually go play the Oakland A's. They get to play throughout the league, which I think is really going to benefit them, especially when you look at how good Miami's pitching is and how good Atlanta's offense was last year. They faced the best pitching day in, day out in that NL East over and over again and put up huge numbers top to bottom. Now they're going to get to go and kind of beat up on some of these you know, teams that maybe aren't playing as well. You guys talked about Baltimore. All these teams that they're going to face outside the NL East aren't going to be quite as good, especially when you think about the arms. So they're going to get a chance to kind of, you know, get comfortable, maybe get back in the role of things. You know, baseball is all about that momentum and getting in that rhythm. And these guys are going to be able to get out of rhythm in the NL East and get back in the rhythm, going to play the NL Central, going to play out West. They're going to get to play against maybe not quite as good a talent and then come back and have that confidence up. When the confidence up, good things happen. Mike, I, I don't know how many times you were thrown out of a game, going back to when we were in college together. Uh, I'm sure it didn't happen then. One time. Okay, so that time, how does it compare, your catcher, how does it compare to the, the, the Phillies catcher in spring training thrown out by Randy Rosenberg for a ball exchange? Well, I'll explain mine first. So I'm back in the minor leagues. It's 2017. It's my last year playing. And I get strike called on me. Had no clue why. I'm in the box. You know, first time I'm ever dealing with this pitch, pitching clock. I should say it's a hitting clock. It has nothing to do with pitching. I think it helps the pitching. So I'm in the box and he calls a strike. Well, the fact is that there is no rule at this point. 
that you have to be engaged by eight seconds, nine seconds, carry the two, all those different numbers that they have right now. The fact is I just had to be in the box ready to go. And I had my hand up to call time. Guy called a strike. Well, I ended up striking out facing a guy throwing a hundred. No, no chance. You know, you take the bat on my hand. So I tried to hand the bat to the umpire and said, Hey, if you wanted my bat so bad, you could have had it. Just ask for it next time. I handed the bat to him and he threw me out of the game. And that that's the only time I got thrown out of a major league or a minor league baseball game or a professional game. And it was one of those times it was had to do with the umpire and ego. And that's exactly what happened to real Muto. That guy literally had ego after the fact he called a strike on Kimbrell. So he calls it on a future hall of famer strike took too long. Was it too long? Was it not? He lifted before zero. So the clock hadn't completely dead, but they have that vibrating pack that makes them say what they need to say because major league baseball, once again, is overstepping mm-hmm. in my opinion. And then real Muto reaches back, which I've done a thousand times and you wait for that ball. You're looking at your pitcher because all you care about is that guy. Kimbrell's eyes are on the umpire. He takes his glove down. The umpire throws the ball, misses the glove, and then turns around and ejects Real Muto. 2,000-plus games, guys. 2,000. Real Muto has never been thrown out, from my understanding. He got thrown out of a spring training game because a guy got his feelings hurt. I mean, just not okay. And no apology, no get-together, no overturn, just see you later. Real Muto tipping, tipping his cap, waving. I thought it was outstanding how he reacted, but that just can't happen. He's one of the best players in baseball. You want him on the field. Nobody came to watch this umpire. The best umpires you don't know exist. You want to see Real Muto play that day. You don't even want to know an umpire exists. Try not to be involved. If, if at all things possible, that means you did a great job. I, I remember someone telling me that as a catcher. If nobody knows you existed that day as a backup catcher, you did your job well. And that's what an umpire should think every single time he walks in the field. Final thing for you, Sergio Romo uh, gets the curtain call after pitching his final game, retiring as a San Francisco Giant, just the way he wanted to do that in the final game prior to the season opener. What do you make of uh, of the way this went and his curtain call and some closure to his career? Every single owner should take note of what happened in San Francisco They called Sergio Romo, a guy that was a huge fan favorite and a guy that really had to fight and claw his way to the big leagues. He wasn't a guy that was deemed the closer in in San Fran because of some unbelievable talent. He was a guy that worked his tail off, 28th round draft pick. He got to the big leagues, won three world championships, has a sick beard, and he got to go out (laughs) at Oracle Park, tip his cap, get a curtain call, get three outs against the Oakland A's against in the exhibition game and tears going down his eyes. And he went to spring training to train for this moment. And I thought that was the coolest thing that a team would reach out to a former player and say, Hey, we want you to go out the right way. This is how we see it kind of drawn up. He looked at his arm and said, Hey, can you do it? Big guy. And he just left, went to Arizona and the rest is history. And one of his former teammates, one of his best friends got to take him out of the game and holding back tears. He holds up his cap Underneath his cap, he has a bunch of little kids' names because every kid that asked him for his autograph, he said, hey, why don't you sign mine because I want you to be with me out on that mound when I walk away. That's exactly what happened. So special stories, that human element we were just talking about, I think that's what we should tap into more when we look at sports and especially baseball because some of these guys are just special. That's that's a special dude that can show you that anything's possible if you put time, effort, and a lot of work into it.
Well said, and a great gesture there for sure. And what you're saying there, uh, we hope to do with you every other week here on on Hot Mike. Do it. Great to see you, man. And we'll we'll catch up in a couple of weeks, and we'll we'll see what news is out there after the first week and a half of Major League Baseball. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. You got it, man. Uh, check out Michael McHenry, Major League Baseball analyst, the Fort McHenry on Twitter. We've also got Kurt Schilling. Chad and I love baseball. That's why we love Kurt Schilling talking baseball at outkick.com. Yes, Kurt Schilling baseball show drops Tuesdays and Fridays. That means there's a new one available right now. Check it out online at outkick.com. Coming up, an LSU fan's dream at Tiger Stadium. Was it worth it? SEC fans probably say yes. That's next here on the Outkick Network. Hot Mike rolls on from 6th and Peabody with Yaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Chad, there's a LSU student, a group of students, but the guy's truck was on surveillance, driving off with merchandise from Tiger Stadium worth $1,500. One count sim- simple burglary was the charge, but he gets caught because they also grabbed some beer, cases of beer near the stadium around 3 a.m., and then went into the stadium, which, I mean, apparently... Stadiums aren't that hard to get into? No. and Not at all. Grabbed some merch, uh, LSU merch, and took off towards the dorm. They found the kid. He's 19. Uh, went to his dorm room and asked to search the room, and they found the beer and the merch in the truck. You know, I would say this is the perfect crime, other than the fact they got caught and they were <laughs> wasted when yeah. they did it, I'm sure. This is very common. Uh, at Tennessee, you could just walk into Neyland Stadium at almost any time of the day or night. It was not hard to get into the stadium. In fact, most fraternity pledge processes required some sort of sneak into the stadium and do something at midfield, whatever it would be. This is very common. Even on the campus of big football schools, I think things like this would happen. So nothing surprised me about this story. Uh, he should have just been better about it and gotten away with it. That's the issue. You, if you're going to try something well, like this, get away with it. But so also, they took multiple cases of beer from the stadium. Um, the merchandise was the most expensive thing, of course. But I'm thinking that beer can't be good if it's been in there since football season. It's got to be flat. Like, why would you think that? Oh, let's grab these cases of beer from the football stadium. That's. I mean, you're not just putting that in there and I selling mean, it anytime soon. He's 19 years old. I don't think he cares about the age of the beer. It's just about consuming whatever alcohol is left in the beer. I don't think they're getting I, together in their dorms and I doing guess. tasting parties and they're swirling it around and they're putting the glass to their nose and trying to see if it's hoppy or not when they, before they drink the beer. I mean, they, they they're probably beer. grabbing their buddy by the ankles and putting him airborne and then doing a keg stand with a flat beer. That, that's, that was most college experiences out there. I'm sure that's still the case with these guys who stole beer from Tiger State. And they were singing Garth Brooks, Colin Baton Rouge. Yeah, I had a buddy way. during the pledge process, I think the statute of limitations is up now, that once defecated on a brand new Mercedes in a car lot uh, at one point. So these are the things that go on when you're early did years know, in college. Did they especially. know the, 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 was there a reason for that specific car it, lot? It was a part of a scavenger hunt as the last part of the pledge process. To take a crap on a car? Yes. 
It was something like do something funny to a high-end vehicle that's not so, yours. There's a lot of pressure on that And it was, guy. it was it was 2 a.m. and at a Mercedes dealership, and I, I witnessed it. I couldn't do that in public. Again, I hope the statute of limitations are up, and I'll never out my buddy who did this, but I did witness a buddy do this exact thing. And then the next day you accepted $1,000 as part of... And then, you know, we got spanked and said, thank you, sir, may I have another when we got back. And that's how we joined the uh, fraternity. Chad that's how we joined the fraternity. Wait until you hear how you the NFL is going to make the preseason even worse. That's next. Mm-hmm.